0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit
1: providencetx.org. Again, today we're going to be in Exodus 39, verses 32 through 43. And when you have turned there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Exodus 39, verses 32 through 43. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps... Uh, with the lamp set and all its utensils and the oil for the light the golden altar the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent the bronze altar and its grating of bronze its poles and all its utensils the basin and its stand the hangings of the court its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court its cords and its pegs and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting The finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. Providence. this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to apologize out of the gates because I sound a little bit like I'm preaching through a culvert. It's because I got a little cold and uh, you're only going to have to endure, you know, I don't know, 42 and a half minutes of this or so, hopefully. But this is uh, this is how I'm feeling this morning, but it's going to be good. We've, we're continuing our trek through the book of Exodus, so I'm excited about that. Uh, my name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, we're grateful you're here. Glad you made us uh, part of your week, and we hope that you enjoy yourselves uh, with us this morning. Last week, uh, we talked a, a lot about the abundant generosity of the Israelites as Moses made his way down the mountain with the two tablets of stone that had been etched with the finger of God. The law was written on these tablets. Now, of course, we know this is the second set, it's not the first set. The first set was broken by Moses in anger as he. He came down the mountain the first time and the children of Israel are worshiping the golden calf. He goes back up the mountain, comes back down with the two new sets of the Ten Commandments and he gives the command to the children of Israel to build the tabernacle and the first thing they have to reckon with is they need the material and they need the, the workmen. They need people with skill to be able to build it and they need the material to do it, which the material includes a lot of precious metals and goods and the scripture records that what we would not expect happens, that They overwhelmingly respond to this, and the generosity is so overwhelming that Moses says, hey, we have more than enough to be able to build what it is that God calls us to build. And so we're picking up on the back end of that as they build the tabernacle. We're picking up at the tail end where Moses inspects and sees that they did it exactly how they were supposed to in complete obedience to the command of God. And so that's really the focal point of my sermon this morning and our topic as we go through the scripture, and that is the nature of obedience to God's word and the blessing that comes from it. And so naturally, we have to talk also about the inverse of that, which is the nature of disobedience and the curse that comes along with that. And so that's kind of the focus that we have. Now, before I pray for us, I've been tasked with just a quick announcement. So if you are a guest or if it's your first time here, this is more of just two minutes or so of a family announcement discussion. And uh, I apologize for it. We'll get right back into the text as soon as I can. Uh, For those of you who are members, you know that we've been in the process of trying to raise the funds in order to pay off our property that we, by the grace of God, purchased last, uh, I guess it was last March. uh, Am I right on that? Last March, February, something like that. We purchased some property and we've been in the process of trying to uh, just push, push, push as a congregation to pay off uh, the land because that's the next step for us to start a building process. And so in March, we had two members of the church here at Providence that came together and said, Uh, Irrespective of one another, they didn't know that the other one was doing this. And they just said, hey, we would like to give $100,000 towards this. But here's the thing, we want the church to match that. So since March, we've been pushing hard. Hey, if we can match $200,000, we can pay off the property. Up until this point, just as an update, we have raised $156,000 toward that. Yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, you guys can give a hand clap for that. Uh, which means we have about 44,000 left to raise and I just wanted to put that before you to say we're believing God that we can raise that before the end of the year starting the new year off uh, in the next phase which is trying to talk about you know what is it going to look like for us to begin building getting a loan all of those things and we've been working behind the scenes so it's not like we'll be caught flat-footed with that but the first step is here and that is we got to finish this off so if you are a member I just want to say thanks be to God that he's doing a good work among us thank you for being obedient and generous to the Lord Jesus and then also let's pray that the Lord will finish this up for us and that we would all join in on that work that so we can celebrate at the end of the year what the Lord's doing among us. If you are a guest, I want to say, ignore everything that I just said, and thank you so much for being here. So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray for us and we'll jump into the Word. Father, we we're just so grateful your word has been preserved for us, a lamp unto our feet, a light into our path. That we have now this morning the truth of the living God to be able to lay upon our souls the gravity necessary for us to not merely live a life of joy but to live a life in correspondence with the glory and the majesty of your name. Thank you that your word has been preserved for us. Holy Spirit, we submit to you And we submit to you humbly because we know we need you to give us the strength, the ability, the courage, the confidence, the faith to be obedient to any one of the things that, Lord, you have commanded of us. We confess that we have many, many, many times over fallen short of your glory through outright rebellion and disobedience or through what we deem to be small and fractions of partial and delayed obedience or disobedience. But Lord, it's all wrapped up in the same. And so we confess to you, would you cleanse us now and help us to hear the good news that your word offers to us about the nature of obedience and blessing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in you we find the amen to all of the promises of the Father for us. And despite our own frailties, you have made a way that we would be recipients of those promises. Thank you, God. And we pray now that as we read your word, you would provide what's necessary for us to be comforted and convicted. That we would simultaneously feel the gravity and the weight of your word and the peace that comes with the, the word itself to alleviate that, that weight and that gravity in light of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. We trust you, Lord, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. So just to recap, what we've gone through this year since January, and if you haven't been here with us, we've been walking through the book of Exodus since January, 40 chapters in 52 weeks, or 48 weeks, really, because we'll finish up at the end of this month. But what we've been following is God's call to the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, who have now, you know, begin to sprawl out into a a full nation of millions of people. Now, along with this growth has also come great tragedy because the Pharaoh, where they live in Egypt, has now come to realize this people's growing larger and larger and they've become a potential threat to the people of Egypt. And so along with the growth of Israel comes the Pharaoh's authoritarian decrees to crack down on them, so much so that they might be deeply oppressed and harmed, and even murdered, as that's how the book of Exodus begins. And so with that, there comes a calling to a man named Moses from God that he might go and see the redemption of the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery and bondage, and into the promised land. But the in-between is an important portion of God's command because over and over again, God has this statement in the book of Exodus I call my people out of the land of Egypt that they might worship me on this mountain. Well, what mountain is that? That's Mount Sinai. That's where we've really been focused the last 13, 14, 15 chapters is this this area of Mount Sinai where God's speaking to Moses and speaking to the people of Israel through Moses. And on the mountain, God said, there will be worship of me, worship of my name. That's what he called them out to do. Now, what we see is that Moses comes down with commands. These commands are etched in stone. They're the moral commands of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. But there's other commands. And in particular, what we're focusing on this morning is the first physical task that the children of Israel are given by God. And that physical task is to build for him a tent, a house of dwelling that he might meet. That's why it's called the tent of meeting, that he might meet with the people of Israel through their representative, their high priest, or Moses, and speak with them, commune with them, be with them. Now, what I want to point out to you is that for us, as New Testament Christians, there's not always that one-to-one correlation, that it's exact between the way in which we operate now in the New Covenant and the Old Covenant, how they operated, but there's always a correlation. There's always something that we might draw from what's happening in the Old Covenant to the New. And here we see that, just like in the Old Testament, there's an inextricable link in the New Testament between worship and obedience. So come worship me on this mountain, and what just so happens to happen on that mountain is the giving of the law. Obedience and worship are interconnected. They're not two different things like ham and eggs, okay? They are one thing. Worship and obedience go together. We worship God with our hearts through faith. We worship God with our minds through study and meditation on God's word, but we worship God with our strength and with our soul through active obedience to his commands. So Jesus said when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment that God had ever given? He says, here it is hero Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one and you shall worship the Lord, your God. No love the Lord, your God. Well, these are both the same loving the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and worship are interconnected as the greatest of the commands of the law. Jesus said that all of the law and the commandments hang upon this love, this worship, that we will be obedient, in other words, to the law of God or the commands of God, if we love our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So what we see here in this passage is Moses goes out and he now inspects the work that the people have done on the tabernacle. And we, just like we should not have expected for them to be extremely generous, If you have walked with the children of Israel so far through their journey, you would not expect them to do what they do here, which is they nail it. They do a great job. I want to read verse 32 and verse 42 for you because there's not anything in your scriptures that's accidental. And the writer Moses wants you to know just how great a job they did being obedient to God's words and plans. Let's start with verse 32. Moses writes, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did, here we go, quote, Did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Now, in case you're thinking, well, you're reading into that a little bit, let's go back to verse 42. So I'm reading on. Just to reiterate, Quote, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all of the work, verse 43. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Sounds a little repetitive, right? Okay, but then he goes on. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. So what do you think, if if you've ever been in an English class, what do you think you should be picking up on? The repetition is the point. Moses wants you to know, they had done exactly what, God had commanded them through Moses' voice. And this is probably like one out of three times that ever happens in the Bible, where it's like they did exactly what God said. And then watch this. Then Moses blessed them. Now, this here gives us an illustration of what will be both Moses' final words to Israel, Joshua's final words to Israel, and in many ways, the framing discussion from this moment onward to Malachi of the children of Israel and their history with God. And that is this, choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods of your fathers before Abram was called? Or will you serve the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt? And that choice, that obedience or disobedience, is what's being framed here with Moses. You see, because when, they brought the, when Moses brought the first set of tablets down, remember, there was disobedience on display, the golden calf being worshipped. When he brings the second set of tablets down, we see obedience and obedience in perfection. In the first instance, what happened was cursing. The children of Israel were killed by the sword. The children of Israel had to drink the powder of their own idols, ground down to dust. And in the second instance, the result was blessing. Moses turned and blessed the people of Israel. Now I want to read to you the final words of Moses because I think it's important for us to understand the nature of obedience and blessing and disobedience and cursing. This is Deuteronomy chapter number 30. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 20. This should also be put up behind me, Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 15. This is Moses at the end of his life. Now, he's been with the children of Israel for 40 years now in the wilderness. He's now seeing the promised land, but he will not go over. And he says this, See, I have set before you today life and, de- life and good or death and evil. See, the two connections here life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today, check this out, by loving the Lord your God, once again, those are connected, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall multiply and live and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Okay, so the first connection is obedience and blessing. Now I want you to think, this is very common in the scriptures all the way from the beginning, Adam Adam and Eve are given blessing with obedience. They have one command and one command alone. Verse 17, but if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but you're drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord, your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and your length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Many of us frame obedience to God's law, mostly in terms of strictures, that God is restraining us from certain components and elements of joy that we would have if we otherwise did not serve God. If we otherwise were not grown up in a religious household, then we could have fun like all our friends. If we otherwise were not bound in conscience to this God of our parents, then perhaps we could have more free joy in doing whatever it is that we wanted to do, pursuing whatever career we wanted to pursue chasing whatever dreams we wanted to chase but because we've been restrained by God therefore we have to be obedient to God then we, we have to therefore be pulled back all of the deeper recesses of our longings and we can't have that kind of joy the Bible just does not in any circumstances give that indication now there's parts of what I just said that are true in that the cravings of your carnal and evil heart do not get to be satiated because it kills you. But that's God saving you from death, not keeping you from life. You see the Bible's very clear on this. The constraints the law offers are like the constraints you give your toddler when you toss him into the deep into the pool before being able to swim. It's called a floating device. And you should be jailed if you don't give that constraint to your toddler because you should love your toddler, right? Protect your toddler, keep them from great harm. And your toddler may look at you and say, I got this, but you as a parent have a responsibility to say, no, you don't. And hopefully you have written in stone by your very own finger on their hearts, thou shalt not jump in the deep end without being able to swim unless you got a floating device and hopefully in italics, dummy, right? Now, God didn't even put dummy down, even though we are dummies at times. See, the Bible gives us the commands of God and the law of God as an invitation into life. That's what Moses is saying. I set before you life and death. Choose life. I set before you the commands of God as life, and I'm inviting you into life. Choose life and not death. We've inverted that through our flesh and said that ultimately God is not inviting us, but he's holding us away from the invitation of life. He's holding us in. And the truth is we're headed into death. He's the one trying to draw us in to something that's safe and full of joy. So here what we see is that the same illustration of Exodus where the children of Israel both are disobedient in the first instance And obedient in the second instance, and we see death and life corresponding to each. Moses also sets this choice before Israel before his death. Joshua then will do the same. And then what we see in the rest of the Old Testament is a constant cycle of rebellion that leads to death and then God's mercy that brings them back to life. Rebellion that leads to death and God's mercy that brings them back to life. And this cycle happens both through the book of Judges and then even into the kings. And then even through the anarchy and division of the kingdom of Israel, all the way to exile to bring them back, to rebuild it with Nehemiah and Ezra, we see God's great faithfulness despite the rebellion of Israel. You see, obedience is merely the outward expression of the inward invisible attributes of love and trust that God has required of us. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That love breeds trust, which then breeds obedience. We obey God because we love God and trust God. And if we all got down to the core root of our disobedience, we would be honest and say it's the times when we love self and trust self that we obey self. And that that obedience to self can manifest itself in many idols but ultimately, it's a disobedience to God because we have exhibited the inward love and trust in the wrong direction. See, the only way f- to truly have a love for your neighbor and yourself rightly is to first start with an overarching and overcompeting love for God, a love that supersedes every other love. And that's what God calls us to. Now, it's no coincidence that what we see in the children of Israel with building the golden calf or building the tabernacle is in one instance in the disobedience, what they do is they build a God of their own creation that looks like them and suits their desires. In the other instance, God calls them to build something out of obedience to the God who created them. You see the difference? In one instance, you're the creator of your own God. In the other instance, you're obedient to the God who created you. And that's the fundamental difference of humanity. If you want to boil it all down, either there is a God who created us and therefore we are required, obligated in obedience to him to hear his voice and to not harden our hearts, or we are creators ourselves and therefore all of creation must bow before us, which means you and I are not a community of saints under a living God. We are dire enemies at war with each other. It's just a matter of who's stronger in the room because you are merely just another God trying to vie for control over me. And the Bible tells us that the truth was written, not just in Genesis 1 and 1, but in the laws of creation themselves. We teach mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis in our gap year program with our students right now. And C.S. Lewis talks about how these very laws, which our founding fathers called them natural law, but these very laws of creation of good and evil, right and wrong, they're woven into the very fabric of who you are. We know this because all of us intuitively have a sense of a universal, that's the wrong thing and that's the right thing. And you don't even have to teach it. We just all intuitively kind of know it. And even the people who deny it will tell you it's wrong when you punch them in the mouth. (laughs) Well, on what basis is it wrong? Well, we just all kind of know it. Of course you do. Now, what's interesting is we all know there's, intuitively something that is wrong and something that's right well the christian knows that's because we have a god over creation who is woven into the very fabric of creation his own nature but there's a second piece that we don't like to talk about but we all kind of know it not only do we all know that there's a right and wrong we all kind of have a sense that we're not on the right all the time now we've done a good job of kind of quelling this we do it through a lot of masquerading we do it through a lot of explaining we do it through a lot of justifying some of us are very well practiced in this more practiced than others when you get married you get more practice right but ultimately we're just trying to suppress that which we know deep down which is that there is a law and we're not following it there's a rule and we're not on the rule so what we like to think is that we're the exception to the rule And if you ever wondered why people hated Jesus is that he came down and said there are no exceptions to the rule He just came out and said, hey, it's not only that you, you know, are an adulterer if you openly cheat. It's you're an adulterer if your heart lusts. And then every human in the room started to squirm. And then he said, it's not just that you're a murderer if you're on America's Most Wanted. It's you're a murderer if you've ever had anger in your heart. And then everyone who went through traffic in Houston squirmed. And Jesus started to speak about things on the Sermon on the Mount in a way that wasn't very feather-haired and nice. It was very strong and intense and made even the Pharisees angry at him. You see, the Pharisees were all about telling people they were going to hell. But then Jesus started saying things like, hey, maybe you're going to hell. They said, wait just a minute. We're the arbiters of hell. We tell people where they're going, where they're not going. You, Who are you to tell me? where I'm going. And Jesus just doubled the ante and said, you are of your father, the devil, and my father told me where you're going. And that was it for them. You ever wondered why they crucified Jesus? It's because, you know, he was not the feather-haired preacher that you've been told. Now, that wasn't all of Jesus' message, though. Then he went on to say, but God has loved us so much that he sent his only son. Now, that's the key. Not only did he say, hey, you're headed somewhere, but he said, but God loves you so much that he's gonna cut you off at the pass, He's going to not merely just invite you into life. He's going to divert your path like Saul of Tarsus onto the path of life. That's great news. I want to read to you an Old Testament story, and I don't have much time, but I want to read to you an Old Testament story that I think illustrates this. It it gives us a, a taste of the nature of obedience and disobedience, and it's something that I think we should read because it's going to give us maybe a little bit of pause because many of us could find ourselves in the place of this man who was a very famous Old Testament character, and dare I say, an infamous Old Testament character in some ways. And his name was Saul. This is 1 Samuel chapter number 15, and I'm going to start reading in verse 13. As you turn there, this is the story of the first king of Israel. And I wish I had time to give you the whole background, but in a very like small nutshell, the Amalekites had fought against the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness of Sinai and it angered God that the Amalekites would fight against this nation that he had brought out of Egypt and this nation of Israelites were not warriors they were farmers. The story goes that the Amalekites come out against the Israelites in Sinai and Moses sends Joshua to fight along with the other Israelites and when Moseses you remember this when Moses' arms were raised high the Israelites won. When his arms would droop, they would lose. So Aaron and Hur stood beside him and raised his arms, and they overcame the Amalekites and the Israelites were able to flee and get away without being completely consumed. But there's a line in that story that's often forgotten. It was forgotten in Saul's day too, where God promised he would have retribution on the Amalekites for what they did and they would be destroyed. But the iniquity of the Amorites would have to be complete. God in his timeline would be judging them righteously for all of the sins that they had committed as a nation. Fast forward and Saul, the king of the Israelites, is commanded by God to go out and kill the Amalekite nations. In chapter 15, God says, now is the time. My sentence is complete. The, Amorite, the Amalekites, and their sin is complete. You need to go out and write against them, and I want you to finish the job. Now, what we know is the story says that both the people of Israel and Saul himself decided to partially fulfill this command. I've heard some of our moms say this. I committed the 9 a.m. I have to do it again for you gals in here. I've heard some of our moms say to their children something like "You know, partial obedience or delayed obedience is still disobedience. And I love that. That's true. Morgan, I've been trying to use this more. (laughs) The difficulty with that is if we're honest with ourselves, that's the most common type of disobedience. Because it's the one, like our fork-tongued serpent enemy in the garden, it's the one that is most veiled from us because we feel superior to our neighbor who is outright disobedient. And therefore, we create another class for ourselves, which is, well, at least I'm not as bad as him or her. Therefore, I must be as good as God wants me to be. Well, that's not what the scripture says. Let's start reading in verse 13, 1 Samuel 15. This is Samuel, who's mourning because he's heard from God what Saul has done, and this is how the Bible records it. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, this is like your child whenever they're caught, but they're trying to butter you up. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, it's a very classic setup here. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? That's a rhetorical parent type of question. Saul said, they've brought them, notice they. Now this is gonna continue to get worse because he follows the pattern of his first parents. Every time we're caught in sin, we will always find a way to blame somebody else outside of ourselves that did it because, we did it because of them. They're the ones who made me do it. They're the reason I was so mad. We do this all the time, even in our own uh, marriages. You know, I'm angry and yeah, I said all the time, but you made me mad. Okay, here he goes. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. This is like, yeah, dad, I robbed the 7-Eleven to get you Christmas presents. Come on, it's really your fault. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. Talking, that's my addition. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night, and Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then and did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You can hear the grief in Samuel's voice. He's saying, even you didn't think you were good enough to be a king. Even you thought you were the lowest of the clans of Israel and you were right. And God made you king, he anointed you, he gave you the seat, the throne of power, he gave you great glory. And yet you fear the people more than you fear God? Why would you do this? If you can't read that and and, and identify with Saul, then I would say that we should spend time in prayer of our hardness of heart. How often do we fear man more than we fear God? It's madness. We are more afraid of our neighbor's opinion of us than we are of God's opinion of us, and that's absolutely crazy. You and I should be certifiably locked up for that kind of madness. God, the one As Jesus said, has the power over both the body and the soul. We don't consider his opinion, and yet we're more worried about how many people are going to like or dislike us, whether in real life or cyberspace. It's it's madness. That's what Saul fell into. He's a king who wants the approval of his people, and so he just goes along. And friends, far too many of us, including myself, are too trivial with going along to get along as though God cares not about the daily decisions of our lives. Well, Samuel brought the harsh news. God does care. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, but I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on a mission that God sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. The people took the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. There it is again. It's the people that did this. But Samuel said, and if you ever want to underline something in your Old Testament, here's a, what a powerful verse. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of divination or witchcraft and presumption or stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Now that's a powerful word. Rebellion is as of witchcraft. You see, for us, witchcraft, we think of that mostly in fantastical terms because we do not see, although I will say in the last few years, there's been an uptick of witchcraft, at least openly. We don't see this on a regular basis. It is a very real, a very present danger to most of the pagan ancient world. And it's still a very real and present danger that we just don't recognize as real. We think more so like, you know, Harry Potter or, you know, kind of fun Halloween-y type stuff. That is not what the scripture says sorcery and divination is. We know that God takes it very seriously because there are a handful of things God requires capital punishment for. and One of them is sorcery. And I want to remind you that this moment here is the beginning of the cracking in Saul's foundation for his kingdom. And the very last day of Saul's kingdom also has a moment of sorcery and divination. When he goes to the witch of Endor, because he has not heard from the voice of the Lord for so long, he's desperate to hear God's voice. He goes to the witch of Endor in order to hear from Samuel, who's dead. So he tells the witch, conjure up Samuel from the depths for me, that I might hear a word from the Lord. And she does, interestingly enough, you didn't, but you didn't expect that from your Bible. He didn't say, all that stuff is hogwash. He didn't say that she was like Miss Cleo and she said, oh, I'll help you with this. You know, Said he came up from the depths, meaning that this witchcraft, this sorcerer, this pagan nonsense is not hogwash. It's spiritually dark and evil. And at its very heart, it's rebellion. Why would Samuel say that? Because ultimately at the heart of even witchcraft or sorcery is a desire to consult anyone outside of God for what your life should look like for wisdom, for guidance, for leadership, consulting, not the Lord, your God, but consulting any other source. And you need a medium to do it. See, that's what our first parents did when they rebelled in the garden. It was not merely a kindergarten morality slip, it was a service to the serpent who lied to them. Because in order to distrust the words of God, our first parents had to trust the words of the serpent. And that's what we don't understand is that you are trusting someone. Who is it? You are believing something. What is it? We have been connived and convinced that you can be a non-believing I don't believe in anything. No, you believe in something. Even the atheist believes in himself. You believe in someone, you believe in something. Your trust is being put somewhere. You have a spiritual bank that you are relying on that that check is going to get cashed because you're writing it with your very life. And you believe that someone is telling the truth, even if that someone is you telling you. And I would say to you, that if you're believing that you telling you is the best way to bank your life, you only must look at the records of you telling you anything to know that it's not a great idea. No one's betrayed you like you. You know how I know that? You can look at your 2022 New Year's resolutions. You telling you to do stuff doesn't work always. Now, some of you are type A and you're like, huh, speak for yourself. But here's what I would say to the type A person. Even when your plans follow through, they still fall out at the depths of fulfillment. It's why you keep making more plans and you never, even when you fulfill your first plan, it doesn't end up in utopia. You need a new one. You see, Saul fell short here in a handful of ways. The first is, of course, pride. Samuel finds Saul as he's building a monument in Gilgal to himself. Long before he ever fell into this sin, he decided his glory was greater than God's. In relation to that, if we are to be obedient sons and daughters, we must first humble ourselves. This is why Jesus told his disciples, if a man is to follow me, he must first deny himself, take up his cross, and only then can he follow me. First, we must die to self. First, our will must die so that we could take up the will of God. Or as Paul says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In that life I now live, I live to the Son of God. If we are to be obedient to God's word and his will, we first must die to our will and our word. Then and only then can we be obedient and listen to hear the voice of the Lord. You see, Saul could not listen to the voice of the Lord because his own voice was too loud. The bleating of the sheep and the people and their voice was too loud. You have to turn down the voice of your neighbor so that you might hear God's voice and love them well. And then finally, if we are to obey the voice of the Lord, We not only must humble ourselves before God, listen to his word, but respond in love that leads to obedience. Love that leads to obedience. You see, at the core of Jesus' words were that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength would be your only hope. And that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. We've got a lot of technological advancements. You don't advance on that. So I want to end with this question. If God, as it's true in the Old Testament and it's true in the New, if God rewards those who are obedient and curses those who are disobedient, is that good news for me and you? I mean, we have to be honest with this. I know we're in church. We have to ask, is that something that I should be preaching? Or is this something that makes less crowds? You know, less people want to hear this. Is that true? And if it is true, is it good news? Because if you pause and have any level of self-reflection, you and I would find ourselves—I don't know—a lot more on the side of children of Israel than Moses. Now I know that a lot of us say we like to, we would like to be Moses, but that's like I would like to be Jason Bourne, but I'm more like you know, the the unnamed person who gets beat up with beat up by Jason Bourne all the time, you know. And if we think about this, we're a lot more on the disobedient side than we are on the obedient side, much like the children of Israel. And yet I say. It's the best news that you could ever be given that God rewards the obedient and curses the disobedient. And here's why. First, number one, Christ was perfectly obedient to the Father. The Bible's abundantly clear about this. If you ever want to know what the enemy's schemes are, just go online and try to look up different academic articles that are written by people with more letters after their name than I could even give because of how many PhDs they have, attacking the divinity of Christ through his sinlessness. Why do they care so much? It's like you can be a disbeliever in Nessie, the Loch Ness Monster, but you don't have to hate everybody that, like, that believes in it. Well, I, won't, I don't write academic papers on why Nessie doesn't exist. Why do so many atheists write papers about why Christ is not sinless? Because the sinlessness of Christ is essential. The virgin birth, for instance, why is that such an argument? If you believe it to be so fantastical, write it off as ridiculous. Why spend so much time against it? Because every man born of man is born of Adam in sin. But there was only one man born of a woman, born under the law, sinless, perfect, righteous, holy. And he was the only man to ever live a sinless life, constantly obedient to the Father. Now, why do I say that's important? Well, because that means that he gets the full blessing. Now, if I stopped there and said, that's the only reason it's good news, you might, that's not good news for me and you. You know why? You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus either. I'm still orc number three in Lord of the Rings. Well, the gospel tells us that Jesus's interests in coming to earth were not just to be righteous. Jesus was not just a mirror to you about it, what all that you're not. And he's not just an aspirational tool for you that you could say, I want to be like him. No, he is the very key itself out of hell and into his presence. Because Jesus said that his interest was to become the curse that you and I are so that he would give freely to us the blessings of the righteousness that he himself had earned. All of the full blessings that the father has bestowed upon Christ because of his perfect life, you and I have now simply by faith because Jesus said that you can be in him. As safe as Noah was from the floods that killed the entire earth, you and I are that safe from the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin, because we're in Christ, the ark of God. That's the offer of the gospel. And it's not merely that Jesus was like, here, I'll give you This awesome gift, he also bore the penalty that you and I deserved, Galatians 3 saying that every man who's hung on a tree is a curse and Christ was made a curse for us by being hung on a cross. And then finally, the reason it's a blessing because you might be saying, well, that's all fine and good court. I'm glad that I don't have to bear that wrath anymore. But what about the fact that God still calls me to be obedient and I'm still wrestling against this bear of my flesh And like Paul, you're saying, I always do the things I don't want to do. And the things I do want to do, I never do. So thanks be to God that Christ was obedient for me. But Christ says, be holy as I'm holy. He's calling me to something I can't do. We'll never forget, there's two parallels to the tabernacle to end where we began this morning. You see, the tabernacle, the true and best tabernacle is Christ Jesus himself. John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled among us. He is the very flesh inhabited by the fullness of God's deity, fullness of God's presence. He is the habitable presence of God on earth with us. Jesus is the tabernacle. And yet, there's a second parallel to the tabernacle that Paul points out in the New Testament. When he says that you and I are being made into a dwelling place, a tabernacle for God by the Spirit. The foundational parallel is that Jesus is the true tabernacle, but the next step is that Christ did not just die for you so that you would not take the penalty of the wrath that you deserve. He didn't just die for you so that he would give you the blessing of the Father, but he died and was raised so that he might make you holy even as he is holy. He promised that he would do so, that he'd make you like him, and that when you see him face to face, First John says, you will be made like him because you'll see him as he is. That God's ultimate plan is making you like Jesus and that's his work. And that even now, as you are wrestling with the bear of your flesh, that's what God is doing in you if you're a Christian in the room. Now you may be thinking, this is a very difficult work because I am failing miserably at it. And I'll say, there's been many times that the work of God in my life is like, you know, making Mike Tyson your sparring partner. (laughs) You're fighting a losing battle often. You're getting beat down. But here's why I have great confidence that this walk of obedience, this pursuit of obedience is one that I will take up tomorrow morning. It's this, it's because God is the one who promised to make me holy. It was no man that promised me that. It wasn't a resolution of mine to be holy. I didn't wake up as a young man and say, you know what I want to be? I want to be holy to God. I woke up thinking a lot of what you other men in this room have been thinking since you were 12. You know, I want to be famous, I want to be popular, I want to be. It was God who said, I'm going to make you like me. When I drew pictures as a child of what I wanted to be when I grew up, I didn't draw the cross. You probably didn't either. But I'm confident that God will make me and like his son Jesus because he's the one who said he'll do it. And so where does that leave us this morning? Well, it leaves us the same place the Israelites were in, the same place the disciples were in. What's laid before you today is life and death. But life is represented in the choice to love, trust Jesus, obey Jesus, pursue Jesus. There's no greater, higher gift than him. And that in that pursuit, that faith, that love that you have for Jesus, to know that he's the one who is willing and working in you for your good pleasure. Now you might say, Well, Court, that sounds all great. I'll sing the songs. No, you know, let me tell you what that looks like. It looks like something you're not gonna like for me to say. It looks like today you're repenting of sin. It looks like you today saying, Jesus, I've fallen short of your glory. Forgive me, wash me in your blood. The fount of Emmanuel's blood runs today, unending. But you and I must run to the fount. Say, I need you, Jesus. Today I need you. It looks like you turning to your spouse and saying, I know you were 99.99999% wrong in this, but I was also wrong in a marginal percentage. Very, very, you know, very small percentage, but I was still wrong. Forgive me. Fathers, this is the most difficult. Looks Maybe it looks like you looking to your children and saying, son, you were disobedient to me, but I was also wrong in the way that I handled it. Forgive me. And acknowledging that it's God who's been sinned against first, before it was any of the people I just mentioned. Lord, you and you alone have I sinned against, David said. And here's the other thing. Expect the blessing of the freedom of what comes along with that, because God will bring that. Times of refreshing come when you do that. God blesses that kind of humility. Humility. If you're not a believer in the room, the first step, the step from zero to one, is the supernatural step, and that is that you might trust Jesus and recognize that you are a bad king. Jesus is a good king. You are a bad savior, Jesus is a good savior, and that he loves you. And friends, whether you're believer or non-believer, doing anything less than the things I laid out today, anything less is taking the crown of thorns, putting it back on, and going out into the world, trying to be obedient again. Just isn't plausible. We need our Lord and our God who has promised to make us into that man and woman to empower us. Let me pray for us. Father, my feeble explanations can't give what you offer. So Holy Spirit, I do ask, speak directly to our hearts, Lord, that we might not hear our accusers' lies bring so much weight on us that we would walk out of here without laying bare before you all the ways we've fallen short. Silence our enemy that we might hear clearly the powerful word of the gospel that despite our worst, you have loved us and that you call us to yourself now. I pray for my friends under the sound of my voice that we might walk out of here feeling a hundred pounds lighter in the spirit because you have taken the burden of disobedience, the curse, you've taken it. And Father, we do ask that you would give us the great strength, dust us off, send us back out, the strength to look to pursue obedience this week so that we might bear the rewards of blessing. We love you,
1: God. And we thank you in Jesus' good name, amen.